0: Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. We are now in Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 13 was the Olivet Discourse. That happened on Tuesday of Passion Week. Jesus had his big day of disputation with the religious authorities in Jerusalem. In the morning and afternoon, that evening, he went back to Bethany. He went back to the Mount of Olives somewhere. And he talked to four of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, about his coming to judge those same chief priests, Pharisees, and Sadducees that he had just been debating with that morning. So we take it up here in chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away. That's because it's now Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday. Well, that's actually, it's actually the Jewish day started in the evening, and this is Tuesday evening, which would be Wednesday morning, Wednesday of the Jewish day. And so two more days, Wednesday and Thursday, Thursday night, which is Friday morning Jewish time, we have the Passover, and that's, of course, when Jesus was killed. Now, the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away, and the chief priest and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him, for they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. Now, the people here that the chief priest and the elders and the scribes were afraid of, those were the same people who ended up yelling, crucify him! Two days later. So, how did they change their mind so fast? Well, at the time, Jesus had done a lot of miracles. He'd refuted publicly in public disputation with the religious leaders. People were thinking, Messiah, Messiah. In my opinion, when they saw him beaten and accused of being a criminal, it's when they turned on him. Although Adam Clark says that the mobs are different, the mobs who were in favor of Jesus were not the same mob that yelled crucify him. That latter mob that was yelling crucify him had been bribed by the chief priests and Pharisees, so they weren't the same people. I don't think so. I think they they turned on him because of his change in circumstances when they saw him beaten like a common criminal. Moving on to verses 3 through 9. While he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper and reclining at the table, I'm assuming this is... Tuesday night it could have been Wednesday I guess and reclining at the table there came a woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume of pure nard and she broke the vial and poured it over his head but some were indignantly remarking to one another why has this perfume been wasted for this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor and they were scolding her but Jesus said let her alone why do you bother her she has done a good deed to me For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you wish, you can do good to them. But you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken spoken of in memory of her. Now, when it says some of the disciples were upset with Mary, this is the same Mary, by the way, who is the sister of martha of bethany and the sister of lazarus of bethany who jesus had just raised from the dead four days before now the disciples were indignant mark says that the parallel passage in matthew says that john says in particular it was judas iscariot one of his disciples who was intending to betray him why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor people now mary broke this vial and poured it over jesus's head how do you break a vial and why would you break a vial? Because usually the container of expensive perfume, and this was very costly, it says in one of the Gospels, it says it was very cost- costly perfume, Three, more than 300 denarii. A denarii is a day's wages. There's 312 work days in the year, not counting the Sabbaths. 300 denarii is about, is almost a year. but I mean, it says more than 300. So let's just say a year or more of wages necessary to buy one vial of perfume. Now, can you imagine if you quit working for one year, take one year of your salary, and, and buy one p- uh, bottle of perfume and pour it on somebody's head? You got to love somebody to do that. And Mary did. She loved. She loved him. How did she break the vial without getting the glass of the container and the oil to p- get so that Jesus's head would have glass in it? Well, it's because. As Adam Clark says, there was a wax seal used at a stopper, and and what she broke was the wax seal, not the glass itself. The NIV Study Bible disagrees slightly, says that this was a one-use sealed flask whose neck was broken at the time of use. But then the the problem with that is, why would you put something so valuable in a a one-use container, a cheap container? I think Clark's got the better argument here. She probably just broke the wax seal and poured that oil on Jesus' head. Now... Jesus rebukes Judas, and he says, You have the poor with you, and whenever you wish, you can do good to them, but you do not always have me. Now, many people, unfortunately, have said that's an excuse for not helping the poor. Kurt Vonnegut, of all people, I don't think he was a Christian. I got this out of Wikipedia. He was preaching a sermon in 1980, and he started criticizing, criticizing Christians' misuse of the verse, and he came up with an alternate translation. Well, I don't think he's a Greek scholar. I wouldn't believe anything he said but he is right that Christians have misused this verse. We'll talk about that a little bit more when we look at the parallel passages, but just for right now, let's just say this, that Judas' Judas's criticism of Mary is the same as criticizing a man buying a coffin for a deceased loved one. Are you going to tell somebody who's trying to honor his dead person, hey, you could have sold that coffin and given money to the poor. There's poor people, poor people around here that can be fed, and here you are buying a coffin for yourself. That's Total stupidity. Unfortunately, that's the way a lot of economic liberals think, that if you spend money, you're robbing the poor. No, you're not. In my example, you're actually helping a poor man who makes coffins, if he's a coffin maker. And when Mary bought that perfume, if she bought it from a perfume dealer, she actually gave money to the perfume dealer and helped him out. But at any rate, the point is not to stop giving money to the poor but, to keep on, but uh, that's not that wasn't Jesus' point once he was buried, once he was anointed for burial by that oil, then there would still be plenty of poor people that could be helped now, we'll say this let's take up the how can I say this the synoptic the problem of re- reconciling or harmonizing different anointing passages in the New Testament. There's another one in Luke that where Mary who was a great sinner, it says. And some people try to say she's Mary Magdalene, and then they equate her with Mary Bethany. No, I don't believe all that. That anointing was in Simon the Pharisee's house. This is in the house of Simon the leper, as Mark says, and as Matthew says. Simon the leper, not Simon the Pharisee. Two different people. Now, the anointing in Luke 7 was in Nain, which is in Galilee, a long way away from Bethany. Bethany's near Jerusalem. Name's up north in Galilee, so there's a different place. It's two different people's house, Simon the Pharisee, Simon the leper, unless you want to say he's the same person who had leprosy. He was a Pharisee that had leprosy. I don't think so. The scholars argue about this till the cows come home, but I agree with A.T. Robertson, who says that the two occasions were different. Let me just read you his quote. This anointing, the one here in Mark that I just read, has nothing in common with that given by Luke except the fact of a woman anointing the Savior's feet, and the name Simon, which was a common name, which was common. The former, the anointing in Luke, was in Galilee. This is in Bethany, near Jerusalem, different places. There, in Galilee, in Nain, the host despised the woman who anointed Jesus. Here, her brother is one of the guests, and her sisters are active attendants. So, you see different people at the two different feasts. In Luke the, in Nain, in Galilee, the woman was a sinner, a notoriously bad woman. Here the woman who announces the devout Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and heard his word months before, as we read in John often. Two different people. There in Galilee, the home of Simon the Pharisee, the host thought it strange that Jesus allowed her to touch him. Here the disciples complained of the way, so there's two different complaints. In Galilee and Luke, The complaint was Jesus allowed a woman to touch him. In Bethany, in Matthew, and Mark, and John, the complaint was of the waste of the nard. In Luke, the Savior gave assurance of forgiveness. In Matthew, Mark, and John, the promise was of perpetual and worldwide honor for Mary. Robertson continues, especially notice that here the woman who anoints is anticipating his speedy death and burial, of which at the former time he had never distinctly spoken. In other words, back during the Galilean ministry, he was keeping it quiet about his death and resurrection. He gradually talked about it more and more as his Galilean ministry came to an end, and this particular anointing in Luke 7 was at the beginning when he hadn't talked about his resurrection, so there would be no no occasion to anoint him for his burial. So Robertson concludes, in view of all these differences, it is absurd to represent the two anointings as the same and outrageous on such slender ground to cast reproach on Mary of Bethany and call her a woman of great sin, as the woman in Luke 7 was. I agree thoroughly. I don't see how anybody can conflate those two different anointings. So we're going to not consider Luke 7 at all. We're just going to consider that this took place at the house of Simon the leper in Bethany, Two days before Jesus was killed, before Jesus took the Passover meal and was killed on that Friday. So this is probably Wednesday night. I said earlier, I said Tuesday after they got back from the Mount of Olives. It's probably the next night on Wednesday night. So let's go now to our parallel passages and pick up some more details. Matthew 26, 1 through 5 has a good bit of extra stuff in it. So let's look at that. Jesus says in Matthew 26, 1 and 2, when Jesus had finished saying all this, he told his disciples, you know that the Passover takes place after two days and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. This is not at the anointing banquet in the house of Simon the leper. This is after the Olivet Discourse somewhere in Bethany. He says, you know, the Passover is going to come in two days. It's Wednesday. The Passover's Friday. So this is probably what we're talking about is Wednesday. The Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Now, Jesus said, you know that. Well, it it sounds like in Matthew, Jesus says, you know two things, disciples. You know the Passover takes place after two days. Well, of course they do. They're not ignorant of the calendar. And you know that the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Well, I'm not so sure that they knew that the Son of Man would be handed over to be crucified. They had a hard time grabbing a hold of that. Remember Peter at Caesarea, Caesarea Philippi said, no, you'll never go down there to be killed. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. How about all the time, twice, James and John, the sons, sons of Zebedee, talking about who's going to sit at Jesus' right hand, talking about their superior place in the kingdom they wanted. That happened once after the manner of Transfiguration and also once in Perea. They weren't thinking of Jesus being crucified. Now, they had been told, so Jesus was maybe what he was saying was you should have known. For example, in Matthew 20:18. in fact, I've got a list in another place in my notes where there's a lot of places Jesus told them, but they had a hard time understanding it. But here's one of them, Matthew 20:18. Listen, we're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. So they had been told. Now, they'd never been told that it was going to be on Passover. So they know it now. At least they should have known it. Now, the Passover is an appropriate time for Jesus to be killed because Jesus is the Passover lamb to be sacrificed for the sins of the people. Now, let's talk about some timing issues here. I'm telling you, you want to get into a scholarly labyrinth of confusion, a bog, a quicksand. Try to figure out all this. the arguments on did Passover happen on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday? On and on it goes. I'm just taking the traditional view. Thursday is when it was, but actually since the sun went down on Thursday, it was on Friday the 15th. And these when he actually had the meal and when Jesus was killed. The Passover proper, the day of Passover, was the 14th. That's what I'm going to take at any rate. Now, I just mentioned here, again, I was talking about how difficult the timing is, is when Matthew says in Matthew 26, 2, where Jesus says, You know that the Passover takes place after two days. Well, there's I've got two scholarly disagreements on that. Gill says it was Tuesday when that was said, and so the Passover was Wednesday, Thursday, when the Passover began on Thursday. Clark disagrees, said it was on Wednesday. And two days later, the Passover refers to the Passover meal at night, Friday night. See, again, it's just hard to say. doesn't really matter. It was uh, two days before the Passover. Jesus, when he says this, he says, The Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Notice the irony in that statement. Son of Man is a messianic term, which he's used over and over again. I won't go into the details of why we know it's a messianic term. There's lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of evidence why it was crucified. Uh, obviously the son of man it comes from daniel 7:14, referring to jesus so notice the irony the juxtaposition of the son of man the messiah will be handed over to be crucified a messiah being crucified no wonder the disciples had a hard time grabbing a hold of this so jesus prophesied two days in advance he says he prophesied in quite accurately the day of his death and notice how calmly he does it he knows he's going to die Matthew 26, verse 3, Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas. Now we're back in Jerusalem. Jesus is in Bethany. The bad guys, the chief priests and elders, are in Jerusalem. Not in the temple, not in the Sanhedrin, which met in the temple, too public. They're plotting murder, so they're doing it secretly in the palace or house of the high priest, Caiaphas. Joseph Caiaphas was his name. The interesting thing about Caiaphas is that after he got Jesus crucified in AD 30, In AD 32, he, along with Pontius Pilate, the two people that got Jesus crucified, were deposed by the Roman government. Both of them committed suicide. I don't remember when Pilate committed suicide. Caiaphas killed himself in AD 35, as Josephus tells us. John Gill says the possible reasons were he was disgraced at losing the high priesthood, or perhaps he was conscience-stricken over killing the Son of God. But isn't isn't it interesting, the two main characters kill themselves. After killing Jesus, within a couple of years, within a few years, here's a little minor historical note: the chief priests are plotting against Jesus. That could have been the current chief priest Caiaphas, as well as former high priests. For example, Caiaphas's father-in-law Annas; those would be the high priest, or it could be the head of the 24 courses of priests that came in every year. To they would they would take shifts, two-week shifts, and come in and serve in the temple. And so you could say, all right, well, that's the chief of the courses, the twenty four chief priest. It could mean that. Or it could be priest, ordinary priest who were elected to the Sanhedrin, so they were big shot priest, political priest, if you will, got elected to the government. Doesn't really matter, just kinda interesting. Just know that they were the top religious and political leaders in Jerusalem who were going after Jesus both religiously and politically. They were going to get him. Matthew twenty six, four through five. And they conspired to arrest Jesus in a treacherous way and kill him. Not doing the festival, they said, so they won't be rioting among the people. Now, the festival, of course, for feast refers to Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Passover was one day long, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread was the seven days after the Passover feast. And during that eight-day period, the population in Jerusalem swelled from about 50,000 to several hundred thousand. Quite unmanageable crowd, if they got excited. The numbers are from the NIV study Bible. And it would be extremely dangerous to arrest Jesus if, the, if that larger crowd was behind Jesus. There could be a revolution sure shooting. Now the Jews had often tried to arrest Jesus and get him and it failed. I don't have the sites in front of me but through the Gospels it's scattered through, through the Gospels stories of when the Pharisees attempted to get him and Jesus got away and they couldn't get him because of the people. Well the Religious leaders decided not to arrest him during the festival, but actually they did arrest him during the festival. So you wonder why did they change their mind? Well, it's because of Judas. He gave them the opportunity when he offered to betray Jesus, and they figured, well, you know, there's a lot of people here, and the situation's volatile, but we got our opportunity now. We can grab him at night when nobody knows where he is, and nobody knows what's going on. We can strike while the iron is hot. However, it was providential that the Jews arrested Jesus during the Passover festival because they were the city was full of witnesses witnesses everywhere that saw the crucifixion and went around and told everybody Jesus was killed on the cross in Jerusalem nobody can deny the historicity of it and then when people saw him alive afterwards nobody could say no he wasn't really killed oh yes he was everybody saw it Here's a quote from John Gill. It was doubtless of the very first importance that the crucifixion of Christ, which was preparatory to the most essential achievement of Christianity, viz. his resurrection from the grave, should be exhibited before many witnesses and in the most open manner that infidelity might not attempt in future to invalidate the evidences of the Christian religion by alleging that these things were done in a corner. Going on to verses 6 and 7 in Matthew 26. While Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon, that's who Mark calls Simon the leper. Matthew says he's a man who had a serious skin disease. The modern translations say skin disease instead of leper because they don't know whether leprosy was actually Hansen's disease, the modern leprosy. A woman approached him with an alabaster jar of very expensive fragrant oil or nard, perfume. Oil and per- the Greek word for oil and perfume is ambiguous. She poured it on his head as he was reclining at the table. The NIV Study Bible says that alabaster, most alabaster of ancient times, was actually marble. So if it's an alabaster jar or marble jar, alabaster is extremely expensive. Doesn't it sound like what the NIV Study Bible said, a one-use, a one-use jar that was broken, the neck of which was broken? Doesn't sound like it is to me. Here's what John Gill says, though. Some think not the matter but the form of these vessels is referred to, and observe that vessels of gold, silver, and glass... For this use being made in the form of alabasters, will call by that name, and that, and that this might be made of the latter, in other words, gold, silver, or glass, not alabaster. Since Mark says that she broke the box not into pieces, for then she could be not, not be said to pour it out, but either the top or side of it. Now let's take a look at the two days here, where it says that when while Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon, and it says in Mark fourteen. One, that that was two days before the Passover, and in Matthew 26, it's in verse 2, it says it was two days before the Passover. I didn't talk about it when I was at verse 2, but I'm going to talk about it now. There's a problem because in John chapter 12, verse 1, John says this. He says that six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was. Well, now, how can John say it was six days before the Passover when Matthew and Mark say it's two days before the Passover? Well, the easiest way to reconcile it, in my opinion, is to take John 12.1 as the day when Jesus came to Bethany. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came, and that's "eris," which can be translated as had come. Six days before the Passover, Jesus had come to Bethany. That gets him there. That shows why he's there. And then we go to verse 2 in John. So they gave him a dinner for him there four days later. He just doesn't mention the four days later. So I don't think it's a big a real problem. Some people go to extraordinary lengths to try to reconcile this though. Let's give some options here. NIV Study Bible and Jameson Foster and Brown say that Matthew and Mark jump the the dinner at Simon the Lepers ahead from six days to two days. In other words, it happened six days before when when Jesus arrived in Bethany, which would have been the previous Saturday the day before, probably somewhere around the previous Saturday, probably before the triumphal entry, and they have this feast there, and Matthew and Mark jumping ahead for literary purposes to contrast the hatred of the religious leaders with the love of Mary of Bethany. I don't believe that. I mean, you can always jump things around for literary purposes. Literary purposes gets kind of fuzzy. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown agrees with that, though. Let me read you his quote. He says, The time of this part of the narrative is four days before what has just been related. In other words, it's a flashback, basically, that John gives. Excuse me, that uh, Matthew and Mark are giving. They're flashing back to six days before the Passover instead of two days before the Passover. Now, of course, to do that, you've got to divorce the two days from the meal. (laughs) It actually doesn't say that the meal took two days before the Passover. It just sounds like it. So... That, that's an assumption if you break that assumption say okay it was six days before that they had this meal at simon the leper's house jameson fawcett and brown said had it been part of the regular train of events which our evangelist designed to record he would probably have inserted it in its proper place before the conspiracy of the jewish authorities but having come to the treason of judas he seems to have gone back upon the scene as what probably gave immediate occasion to the awful deed in other words john flashed it back Well, that's nice. I don't believe that. Here's another attempt to to reconcile it. Adam Clark says there were two different meals at Bethany being referred to. The one at Simon the leper's house two days before the Passover in Matthew and Mark, and the one at Lazarus' house was six days before the Passover in John 12. And Clark says the reason you can say that is because Mary anointed Jesus' head in Matthew and Mark two days before, and Mary of Bethany anointed his feet in John six days before. I don't think so. The answer to that, if you want to put both of these meals at the same place at the same time, two days before the Passover, is you just have Mary anointing Jesus' head and his feet, anointing them both. Adam Clark goes on to say that there's two different meals because in Matthew 26 and Mark, it was Simon's house... John 12 says it was Lazarus' house. But I read the passage in John 12. It doesn't say it's Lazarus' house. It just says Lazarus was there. It doesn't say it was his house. He was visiting Simon the leper. So it's just the easiest thing to do is say, look, it was one meal. It was two days before the Passover. It was in the house of Simon the leper. Mary and Martha and Lazarus were there with Jesus. And it was a one-off event. Let's keep it simple. Now here's an interesting question. How could it be at the house of Simon the leper? A leper's not supposed to be walking around in public. He's contagious, right? Well, the answer is is that lepers were only forbidden to stay in walled cities. But an open village like Bethany was okay. They were not forbidden to stay stay in open villages. I guess they figured the contagion would spread if they stayed inside a city where there was a bunch of people. But if you were in an open village like Bethany, a leper would be safe. But another speculation is that Jesus had actually healed him in an earlier time, and that's why they were at his house. That makes more sense to me. Simon the leper would then be hosting Jesus from a sense of gratitude, John Gill says. Now, let's talk about Mary's anointing of Jesus' head. Now, this was a common practice. This was not a one-off event. Anointing feet was unusual. People didn't do that, but anointed heads all the time. It was usually done at festivals and large entertainments and weddings. For example, here's a scripture in Psalm 23, verse 5, You prepare a table before, before me in the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. So that would be a cool thing to do for your desk. Pour oil on the head. Olive oil. It seems to me to be kind of sticky and uncomfortable. But that's what they did. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say this. The only use of this anointing on the head was to refresh and exhilarate. A grateful compliment in the East amid the closeness of a heated atmosphere with many guests at a feet. Now, there are three possible reasons that Mary could have anointed Jesus. One, just to refresh him. Two, because she says, he's king, and I'm going to anoint him. Or three, to prepare him for burial. Because the word for anoint, the Greek word for anoint, also means embalm. Because that's what they did to prepare corpses for burial in that hot climate. They would rub them, rub them down with oil to keep them from smelling and rotting. And so Mary could have deliberately anointed Jesus knowing that he was about to be killed. But on the other hand, she might not. If She might have just been trying to refresh him or saying, he's my king. And Jesus then interpreted it for her and saying, well, well, you didn't realize it, Mary, but I'm going to die. You've prepared my body for burial. Either way, it was pretty dramatic. I actually, my in my opinion, I don't think she knew that he was going to die. I think they had a hard time with that. But on the other hand, they, I'm sure they knew that the whole city was in an uproar and everybody was, there was, there was trouble in the air. So maybe she did. I don't know. But. It was a good thing she did because she loved him. Remember, that was over a year. That oil was worth over a year's worth of salary. Now, in verses eight and nine in Matthew twenty-six, we read this: When the disciples saw it, this anointing, they were indignant. Why this waste? They asked. This might have been sold for a great deal and given to the poor. Jesus, Judas is here speaking for the disciples, most probably. Now, the disciples could have been mad at the woman for doing it. They could have been mad at Jesus for letting the woman pour the oil out, although it's hard for me to believe that they would have the guts to criticize Jesus. Jesus was all all the time criticizing them, and they were scared a lot of times to say anything to him. So I don't think they were criticizing Jesus. Or Maybe they were not really criticizing Mary directly. They were just saying, well, your zeal is misguided, and we applaud your zeal, but my goodness, you could have given that money to the poor. I don't think that's it either. I think it's because Judas wanted the money because he was hungry for money. Same reason that he ended up shortly thereafter betraying Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Now contrast the attitude of the disciples toward Mary compared to their attitude toward a village that didn't receive Christ. If you recall, they wanted to call fire down from heaven and destroy it. I think that was James and John, the son of Zebedee, born heirs, sons of thunder. So here they want to destroy the village that didn't believe in Jesus, and I hear somebody wants to believe in Jesus by giving him costly perfume, and they criticize her. So whether you reject Jesus or you give him too much adoration, either way, the disciples are going to find a way to criticize it. Poor woman gave her all to Christ, and then they get angry with her. Doesn't show the disciples in a very good light. However, John Gill says the disciples actually made a very plausible objection at least on the surface, because of the cost of the perfume. They could have spent it on the poor. Now, when Jesus said that the poor you always have with you, he's referring to a law in Deuteronomy 15:11. For the poor will never cease to be in the land. Therefore I command you, saying, You shall freely open your hand to your brother, to your needy and poor in your land. Now, notice... This guards against the misinterpretation of that verse because in Deuteronomy 15 the scripture says, "Open your hand to your brother." Why? Because there's always going to be poor. If there's always going to be poor, that means you always got to give to them. The verse says to continue the helping the poor. It doesn't say throw your hands up in despair and quit helping the poor because they're always with us. Now here's a minor point. I don't think it's a problem, but some people get. A little worried because in John, I think it's John. One of the passages, John is the one. Judas is the one complaining about Mary's problem, whereas in the other two Gospels, it just says the disciples complained. Well, Adam Clark points out that there's a figure of speech which rhetoricians call "inalage," where the plural is put for the singular. In other words, the disciples are complaining. That's because Judas was one of the disciples and he represents all of the disciples. Figure of speech. Speaking of this action of Judas, it's remarkable the disciples never had a hint of his true character until the very end. Later when we get to John, John's passage says it tells us explicitly in the only place in the scriptures where John is called a thief where Judas is called a thief, in that passage it says he was stealing money from the offering box, from the collection box. He was stealing but the disciples still put him in charge. Either the disciples did or Jesus did, and you wonder, well, why would Jesus put one person in charge of the money box without accountability, without two people being in charge of it? Well, it could be that he was very reliable and had been reliable up until then, and they had no hint of it, and he just only at the very end started getting to be hungry for money, and he might have started noticing the opposition building and saying, well, you know, I thought there was going to be a big messianic kingdom, and and I was going to be one of the big shots in the messianic kingdom. Now it looks like my leader, Jesus, is going to get killed, and I'm going to get killed with him, or I'm going to be exiled with him, and so I want some money. We'll get what I can get out of this. And maybe at the very end, he started stealing the money. I don't know. But at any rate, the other disciples had no idea who it was that was going to had no idea that someone was going to betray Jesus. And then when Jesus told them at the Last Supper in a couple days, they who who is that Lord? They couldn't they couldn't figure out who it was. Matthew twenty six verse ten. But Jesus, aware of this, aware of what the, aware of the grumbling amongst the disciples, aware of this, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a noble thing for me. Now the Greek word for noble has got a mixture of meanings in it. The connotation is both beautiful, as an aesthetic, and Noble as in beautiful and noble as in good, it's ethical with an ethical sense. And if, you, if you've read any Greek philosophy, you know that the Greeks always talk about something beautiful, something ethical. And they mix the idea in their minds a lot more than we do. Now, poor old Mary, she was probably cut to the quick by the disciples' words. Here she was adoring Jesus, and then you start criticizing her. Now, that's a good object lesson for those of you who like to preach sermons. How many times you give you, you see people giving their all to Jesus and sure enough there's gonna be some pointy headed salaba dripping Pharisee criticizing the the devotion of that person. Look at him, he just wasted his life. Now you know, if Mary had been blamed by Pharisees, that would have been one thing. She probably wouldn't have cared too much to be blamed by those religious hypocrites. But be to blamed by Jesus' own disciples, that was quite another thing. Now Jesus became aware, it says Jesus aware of this in Matthew twenty six verse ten. And how did he know? Well, he could have overheard the disciples talking. He could have seen the looks on their faces. He could have seen the looks on Mary's faces. It could have been supernatural revelation. John Gill always says that. I don't think so. He just looked at them and realized, these disciples are putting down this beautiful woman for what she's done for me. Matthew 26:11, Jesus says, Look, guys, you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Mark 14, verse 7 says this, You always have the poor with you, and you can do what is good for them. There's an extra little detail that Mark adds. You always have the poor with you, and you can do what is good for them. Jesus never meant for you to quit doing good for the poor, but he also is very appreciative of people doing good for him because he's about to die. Matthew 26:12. By pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she has prepared me for my burial. As I said before, that could either be as an anointing for king to refresh him, or actually she could have intended to to signify that Jesus was about to die and she was preparing him in advance. I don't think she was that prescient. But Jesus took the anointing as a symbol of his embalming, of his death. The NIV Study Bible has an interesting point here. They say that Jesus seems to be indicating that he was expecting a criminal's death because criminals were not anointed with oil and that Mary was going to take up that lack. She was going to give him oil when nobody else would give him oil because he would be killed as a criminal. Matthew 26:13, Jesus says, I assure you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed to the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told in memory of her. Now, how perfectly Jesus' prediction has been fulfilled. We're talking about her right now, over 2,000 years later. It's a big contrast to the apostle's attitude of censure. She's famous because of what she did, and the apostle said, oh, she's just wasting money. There is another parallel passage of this incident, according to Robertson, in John chapter 12, verses 2 through 8. Not a lot to add here. It does mention that Mary anointed his feet and not his head. I think that's because she anointed both. That's how I reconcile that. And again, as I said earlier, the reconciliation problems have given lots of people some PhDs in New Testament criticism. One little point here on the point of why would the disciples put Judas in charge of the money? The NIV study Bible says he must have been a man of some reliability before he got off into thieving, but maybe he wasn't a thief until he was put in charge. Maybe the idea to steal money came later, as I said, once he realized that his prospects were dimming because of Jesus' falling prospects. Now let me finish up here with some thoughts on this phrase, for you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. I have heard that used years ago when I was in high school politician was talking about government programs, poverty programs, welfare programs, which of course have been an absolute disaster and probably perpetuated poverty worse than anything else could have done because they're misguided regardless of the good intent behind them. And so this politician was saying, well, you know, you always have the poor with you. We ought not ask the government to take care of the poor. Well, it's true that the government's welfare doesn't do nearly as good as private charity and it's caused misapplied. It's caused all kinds of uh, social problems. But that was a misuse of the verse because it doesn't mean that we don't have opportunity to take care of the poor after Jesus was 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 gone. Now, let's ask a question here. Did Jesus mean that poverty will never be eradicated from the earth when he says you will always have the poor with you? Well, the problem with that, well, here's an, here are arguments that he's only talking about The poor during the time of the disciples. In other words, you disciples will always have the poor with you during your lifetime. And he's saying nothing about the rest of the world, because in my own opinion, poverty can in fact be eliminated from the world. Or close to it, poverty rates have been shrinking all over the globe since the industrial revolution and since the information revolution, despite the growth in population. Or you could take the other argument and say that yeah, Jesus meant that poverty would always be on the earth. Because there's always going to be sin that leads to poverty, regardless of technological advances. For example, domestic abuse, domestic neglect, adultery, alcoholism, and such such as that. So, I guess if you're going to be a little bit pessimistic, there's always going to be some kind of poverty on Earth, no matter how advanced economies get. I remember reading a libertarian, Henry Hazlitt, an economist who said that poverty will be conquered. That was very encouraging. I thought that was great. But libertarians... Tend to generally neglect the fact of human sin, and how much grief that human sin can cause, and how much poverty it can cause. So, at any rate, Jesus was taught, not telling the disciples they could quit giving money to the poor; that we should take all our money and give it to Jesus, and then don't give anything to the poor. He's saying, no, she's preparing me for burial, just like somebody went out and bought a, bought a coffin. There's nothing wrong with that. Jesus said, you will not have, you will not always have me. In fact. They weren't gonna have him even for one more week. Two more days they were gonna have him, then he was gonna be gone. Ladies and gentlemen, that's the end of the banquet where Mary anointed Jesus in Bethany at the home of Simon the Leper. We will take up the we will begin to take up the rest of Mark 14 in the next audio. I hope you enjoyed this one.